Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, coming up on today's programme, we're going to take a look at the crisis that's looming in China as the coronavirus takes hold once more there. We'll examine the problems that are facing the world's largest economy and the impact that that could have on the global supply chain and economic growth around the world. Platform propaganda as Europe's first full-scale ground war in a generation takes place right across the Ukraine. It's also playing out in real time on social media. I'll be joined by digital media expert Tanya Lockhart, who is from DCU, to examine how governments are using social media and how platforms are responding. And finally, I'm going to talk to John Thornhill from the Financial Times about going it alone. After 30 years writing about business, he became an entrepreneur himself and he's got seven top tips for anyone who's thinking of taking the plunge. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, with almost 400 million people in partial or full lockdown, the coronavirus has once again wreaked havoc on society and on business in China. This week, one of the world's largest manufacturing hubs near Shanghai came to a grinding halt, fueling again concerns about the Chinese economy and also the global supply chain. To discuss the issue now, I'm joined by Neil Kimberley, who's the correspondent with South China Post. Neil, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, Neil, here in Europe, the war in Ukraine has replaced COVID in the headlines, uh, but things are very different in China. Can you just take us through the extent of the virus there and the lockdowns that are being imposed? Well, as you mentioned, some 400 million people in China are currently in full or partial lockdown. Uh, To put that into context, if you look at this, over three quarters of China's top 100 cities were in lockdown on April the 6th, which is the last time we got proper data. Um, and this is a serious lockdown. We're not, you know, it's not, you can go to the park for a walk or something. You stay in your apartment. And if anybody in that apartment block gets it, they seal it all off and they bring the stuff to you, the food to you. And there's been problems. I mean, there's 26 million people in Shanghai alone who are having to be essentially fed as we go along because it's such a, light, uh, such a tight lockdown. Now, yesterday... President Xi was speaking on the island of Hainan, which is in the south of, uh, off, off the south coast of China. He said, we must persist with strict, dynamic COVID clearance. So there's no signs that he's letting up here. Mm. But if you think of it from an economic perspective, you mentioned the 400 million people in your intro. These top 133 quarters of them being locked down. Over 50% of China's gross domestic product is in some form of lockdown, which means you've got the factories aren't working, mm. therefore they're not exporting. There's a big build-up of container ships off the port of Shanghai at the moment. As you mentioned, some big names are closing. Up in Jilin province, which has had it really bad, Volkswagen are there, Toyota. The, um, the MacBooks are produced with chips that are produced around Guangzhou and Shenzhen, both locked down. Mm. And Nothing, not uh, a lot going in, not a lot coming out. Yeah, and all of that is going to have a, a knock-on effect uh, on supply chains all around the world eventually. But just for the moment, uh, can we look at what's happening in China? That political um, 
strategy of the zero COVID, uh, that's going to threaten for sure the country's massive export machine and eventually, as you say, weigh heavily on economic growth. It's clearly not working. So in your view, is the government likely to change tack on this at all? The key word going into 2022 for China or for the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi was stability. They had in mind the Winter Olympics, which they've now got through. They had a a session of the National Congress of the People uh, in March, which is when they set the 5.5% economic GDP growth target for this year. But further ahead, in the autumn of this year, they're going to have the keynote Chinese Communist Party Congress, which is where President Xi is hoping to get another five-year term. So there is an argument that they may well persist with this Mm. right through until after the November. They're talking about November now for this. Mm. Through that, until all the political changes have been rubber-stamped by the Congress, and then they'll re-look at it. But they've got another problem. And the problem is that the Omicron virus doesn't really care Mm. about lockdowns. It will find a way. And unfortunately, they seem to be in a position where a large section of the population, particularly the elderly, were rather reluctant in the first place to take a jab. And so they're essentially unvaccinated. Mm. And can I just look at that for a second? They have heavily relied on quarantine as the antidote to this virus. But Mm. how much of the population is now vaccinated there? And in light of the virulence of the Omicron strain, is there any new attempt to vaccinate that older population, those over 80? Well, it was interesting. The WHO made a point, I think it was yesterday, saying that China has become, there was a big exporter of vaccines. That stopped. Now, that either suggests they're keeping it for domestic consumption. I don't think there's any accurate data on how many people have been vaccinated or not vaccinated. But I would add this. I'm not sure that there's much data about the effectiveness of the Chinese vaccines against the Omicron virus. There was some evidence earlier in the pandemic that they weren't quite as effective against the other variants as like the likes of Pfizer or the AstraZeneca. So they may have a problem where they have a, they've produced a Chinese vaccine which actually doesn't do the job. And I know for a fact in some of the Middle East countries where the Chinese were providing kindly vaccines for the population, mm-hmm. those countries ended up having to give three or four jabs. Yeah, because of the, effect, the effectiveness yeah. of them, yeah. So... Just looking at the issue of uh, how society is dealing with this before we get to the business uh, end of things. Um, You mentioned there President Xi is going to attempt to get re-elected again. Is there any signs that um, the Chinese people have kind of reached their limit with this strategy? There's been some video footage, which is interesting, coming out of Shanghai. People screaming uh, abuse at the officials in the street some of them trying to make a break for it to try to get food, etc. But to be honest, it's a, it's a high hurdle because mm. if you put your head above the parapet, you're probably going to get it chopped off. Mm. So if there is a level of discontent, it is beneath the surface. But we should always bear in mind that the social contract in China is essentially you give up your political rights. There's no democracy in the sense that you and I know it. Mm. But in return... 
we will create circumstances where the economy does well and you will get richer. And over the last 20 or 30 years, millions of people have been taken out of poverty. But now in this pandemic, people in China are not feeling that they're getting any richer and they don't have political rights. So you start to get a build-up where, and what's in it for us? Mm. And then the social contract uh, is essentially broken. Yeah. Yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Neil Kimberley, correspondent with South China Post. Now, Neil, can I turn uh, to the issue of the Chinese economy and the implications that that has for the world economy? You mentioned Shanghai there, uh, 26 million people, and also the home of the world's largest shipping port. Um, Strategically, they're important to China, but they're also very strategically important internationally. What's happening there at the port at the moment? In Shanghai, I think Maersk was saying that the big container company, Denmark, uh, where they're domiciled, some 220 container ships stuck outside Shanghai, not going in, not going out. Nothing's moving because the port's not working. So essentially, that means all the ships are off China, but they're going nowhere. Mm. So even when you open up again, you've got, then got to get the stuff onto those ships, then around the world, and get everything into the right places to start again. We went through this at the start of the pandemic. We're rerunning it again. Now, David Malpass, who's the head of the World Bank, said yesterday it would be a good thing if the rest of the world became less dependent upon China. But this proves it, but you can't just do that overnight. Mm. And in fact, last year, China's share of global exports went up from 13.5% to 15.4%. Mm. So in any, if anything, the markets or the world economy has become even more dependent on China. So these cause seismic shock, shocks around the world. But there's a flip side to this. You see, if the Chinese factories aren't working, they're not using any energy. And if they're not using any, any energy, then China's not having to buy so much oil. Mm. Yet we're already seeing in Ireland and in the UK across the world, the oil price is significantly higher, not just because of the Ukraine, but because it was going that way anyway. So when China comes back on stream, the energy bills in China are going to rise again. And believe me, if they need oil, they'll just buy it. Mm. And that brings us to their relationship with the Russian government. Um, so far, they've played a very clever game in relation to the Ukrainian war. Um, they're simply threading water so far, at least overtly. What's your read on the political position that they might take ultimately? I think... Presidency, who met President Putin the day before the start of the Winter Olympics, probably feels he's been sold something very bad because it's not the Chinese way to be dragged into this kind of thing. If mm. you think about it, think about it from a Chinese perspective. At the moment, here we are in the Ukraine, the Russians have gone in, and the Russians are basically saying, the parts of the Ukraine that don't want to be part of the Ukraine, i.e. The, the areas with the big Russian speakers, can just walk away mm. and join Russia if they want or become independent republics. That doesn't play well with the Chinese because the Chinese are obsessed with the sanctity of international borders. Because if you accept Putin's argument, then why, and, and China is seen to be a kind of a passive, if not active supporter, but if you, if you think Beijing is supporting that kind of argument, then equally, you could argue that Taiwan can walk away from mainland China. 
mm. which is something that Beijing could never tolerate. You could even apply the same logic to Tibet mm-hmm. or even the Uyghur part of China where the, the Uyghur Muslims live. So, so it's it... very difficult for the Chinese, but they've got this relationship with the Russians. They need the Russian energy to a large extent. But I don't think this is a... I think it's a marriage of convenience. And I think if the Chinese were getting bogged down too much in it, then I think they prefer to back away a little bit. I think the issue for the Chinese going forward is the closer that the West perceive the Chinese are to Russia, the greater the possibility that Western consumers will turn around and self, they'll self-sanction. Mm-hmm. Just as you know, Western economies are saying, well, we're not going to buy Russian energy, or we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that. So, and that would be bad for China, because China, although China's a massive economy, the export sector is still very critical. I do think, perhaps, that we're seeing the beginning of a wider process of deglobalization, where manufacturing is going to come back into Western Europe, whether that be Ireland, the United Kingdom, Europe, essentially because it's become obvious, and the pandemic was the catalyst for this, you can't actually depend on the supply chain to prosper in all circumstances. And when it breaks, you've got a problem in the West. Yeah, and uh, you spoke about the supply chain issues earlier in relation to Shanghai. It does take a number of months for those to kind of filter out into the wider global economy. But when they do, uh, the impacts will be felt all around the world. Um, I wanted to pick you up for a final point there, a point you made earlier. You said that the the government recently has begun talking more about stability than prosperity. Um, And that's an interesting, uh, I think, uh, angle to look at. Is that because they don't believe prosperity is achievable or they feel the issue of stability is an issue for them in terms of social compliance? There's a number of issues, I think. it's In terms of stability, never assume that the Chinese Communist Party is a single entity. It's built up of various factions, like any political party. It's just that we don't see it because it's all done behind closed doors. So this is the party piece this year, this Congress later in the year. This is the massive party piece. only happens once a decade, every five years. Mm. So it has, to, it has to go smoothly. So everything that makes that go smoothly is what they want to achieve. Anything else can wait. Mm. As regards prosperity, they were talking, a big thing in China last town in the last year was common prosperity, basically the trickle-down effect where everybody got a bigger, slightly share, a bigger share of the cake. The problem was the way they went about it was to lop off some of the tall poppies' heads. So they went after the very rich people who were, and, the, and the big tech, tech, technology companies and they kind of caused a bit of a seizure on their own stock market mm. because the Western investors took fright and pulled away. So you haven't heard so much about common prosperity in recent times. But there is a great emphasis on what they call the dual circulation economy, which is as much based on domestic consumption as it is on exporting stuff to Ireland, UK, the rest of the world, America. But you can only achieve dual circulation with a higher emphasis on domestic consumption if the people in China as a whole have got the money to spend. Mm. So you have to get them wealthier so they've got more money to spend. And that's the quandary they're in. They've also got one other major problem, and it's a bit like Japan. They're getting older more quickly. Yes, they have an ageing population. They have an ageing population, and they're not having enough young people being born as a consequence of the one-child policy for decades. And they've also got a gender skew because back in the day, when they were only having one child, oh, yeah. unfortunately, they were 
and basically aborting a fair number of the females and keeping the men for cultural reasons. Yeah. So they've so got a, they've got a gender skew. They've got an aging population. They've got a lack of children coming through. There's a real risk. They get old before they get rich. Uh, they certainly have a multiplicity of problems. Uh, many of them, you'd have to say, of, of their own making. But for now, we'll have to leave it there with those very interesting observations from Neil Kimberley, correspondent with the South China Post. Neil, thanks very much for taking the time to, to take us through those today. Pleasure. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next... A war at the heart of Europe and it's all playing out on our screens and on our phones. How has social media impacted the propaganda of modern war? Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, turning to the war in Ukraine, Europe's first full-scale ground war in a generation is being played out on the ground and in real time on social media. Both sides are trying to marshal all the modern media tools at their disposal to their advantage. But how are the platforms and the governments responding? I'm joined now by Dr. Tanya Lokot, who is DCU Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications. Tanya, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tanya, now you're from the Ukraine and many of our listeners will remember a very powerful piece that you wrote in the Irish Independent just days after the war started about how important communications was for you with your family. Can I ask you, how are your family now? Um, yeah, that's that's actually a really good question to kick off with. Um, so I was um, actually able to evacuate my parents just a few weeks ago. Um, I had to go to Slovakia to get them from the Ukrainian border and good friends of mine helped me get them over. Um, so they're now here in Dublin and they're adjusting to, to Ireland. But there's, of course, a lot of extended family who are still in Ukraine and we're, we're still keeping in touch with them and checking on them every day. Of course, it's, it's a huge relief for you to have them here. But uh, as you say, I'm sure there's many more people who are behind that cause worry. Are you keeping in contact with them on a daily basis? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I obviously have a lot of obviously friends and, and former colleagues in Ukraine as well. And um, I have to say, surprisingly, like both mobile connections and the Internet have held out fairly well, especially in cities that haven't seen much destruction. Of course, in those areas like Mariupol, where there's just been a lot of physical attacks and, and shelling, the, the infrastructure is a lot worse. And so that there they're having a lot of trouble with um, Internet connection or even mobile signal. Uh, but overall, I think Ukraine, I think I've seen um, somewhere um, information that about only about 15 percent of, of kind of Internet connection has been lost. But overall, the country is still holding out. Yeah. And I think it's a sign of how important those communications uh, with people who have left and fled uh, are in staying in, in contact with them. Uh, I suppose you can't put a price on staying in contact and staying informed through direct contact. But Tanya, you're an expert in the digital media space. Can I ask you how important do you believe the social and digital media has been in this war to date? I think it's fair to say it's it's playing a central role um, in, in how the war is being communicated and how I think a lot of the world um, learns about the war. Um, and it's also kind of played, you know, it's played an important role in terms of Ukraine and Ukrainians being able to communicate externally about what's happening. 
and kind of allow the world to bear witness to to the war crimes and to the destruction that Russia is um, is bringing to Ukraine. It's also been really important for internal communication, as you said, you know, from coordinating help and humanitarian relief to just finding, you know, the best way to get somewhere or the safest way to get somewhere and finding help along the way. Um, so I think it's fair to say there's a, a range of different social media platforms that Ukrainians are using. And of course, the Russians are also using social media to sort of present their side of the story to talk about why um, this war or how they're calling it a special military operation is actually necessary, why they're doing it. And of course, spreading disinformation about what is actually going on on the ground, uh, primarily aimed at their own internal Russian audience, but also partially aimed at the external audiences, also the English-speaking audience, for instance, as well. Yeah, and we look at how um, each of the players are using it uh, in different ways for their own audience. But we just step back for a second and and say that historically social media has been used in lots of different ways in wars uh, to create uprisings, to topple governments, um, shutting down the internet uh, and manipulating elections in the US. But the way that social media has been used in this war is kind of a game changer because they're proactively using it to do things like create armies, real armies, and, you know, um, foster support in a way that they haven't in the past. Do you think that this war has been a game changer for social media? I think partially, um, in, you know, there's lots of things that we're now kind of seeing um, in a more intense way. You know, for instance, all the open source intelligence where, um, in you know, investigators are using videos and photos from different places in Ukraine to actually identify, you know, whose uh, military equipment is being destroyed, where it happened. We've seen something similar in Syria, for instance, but now there's obviously a lot more videos and photos coming out from Ukraine. Um, and there's almost like an onslaught of all these images that people have to verify. Um, I also think in terms of being proactive, as you said, uh, I think Ukrainians, both the government officials and kind of ordinary Ukrainians, understand really well that if there isn't information coming out, uh, information that is structured, that comes from official sources that isn't just guessing or or some sort of speculation, then that space will be filled by Russian disinformation. So everybody understands that it's really important to keep providing information, um, both factual information about casualties, about train schedules for evacuation, but also Im- information that we can say is emotionally charged, you know, such as testimonies of people whose houses have been destroyed or who were able to leave and escape uh, towns that have been besieged, and you know, the, of course, the really horrific and heartbreaking stories um, of of people who have whose lives have been lost. Um, so, and I think we'd have to look at the role of Vladimir Zelensky in this. In the early days of the campaign, he was very prominent on social media, appearing in Kiev in his fatigues, surrounded by his cabinet, to show that he was present and active in the defence of the city. Um, Do you think that his role was pivotal from the outset in garnering support from the West that may not have materialised had he not been so forthright? I think he certainly played an important part. Um, I think he, he understood, he and his team understood very early on that he had to remain visible first to kind of forestall all of that disinformation that was coming out of Russia, that they kept saying that he left the country and that he escaped. So he started with that. But then I think there was also a realization that it's really important to keep sending out these official messages about, you know, where Ukraine stands, what it needs, 
what kind of support it needs and to keep making making those claims because you know we know that usually the language of diplomacy is is all about being polite and kind of being reserved and asking for things nicely but you know in this war there came a point where i think everybody in ukraine's government realized that we need to be sometimes rude we need to be for you know very very open we need to be very sincere and we just really need to show that this is a tragedy on an unprecedented scale and we are here our people are here everybody is is giving their all to protect their country but that means that we require more support from you know from the EU from other countries um because we can't do it on our own and i think that's what kept this communication going yeah you mentioned there uh, his his team and what is unique i think about zelensky's approach to this is that his voice always seems authentic but there has to be a large team of people behind this effort because as you say it's not just about the proactive initiatives it's also about you know squashing disinformation and misinformation do you know where that team is being run from is it from inside the ukraine have you any insights into where the operations are coming from um, i think predominantly um his his team in, in terms of like you know the president's office and i'm sure he has a communications team as well as well as all the other ministers like the foreign minister and the minister of digital information um they're all based in ukraine and i think again that was a a, a choice that that was deliberately made to, to say that we we remain in Ukraine. Some of these people travel, you know, for various meetings with uh, high level government officials, but they inevitably return to Ukraine and, and to Kiev uh, because again, it's a matter of being visible and remaining visible on the ground in Ukraine. Um, but I'm sure that you know there there's probably cooperation going on, just as we know there's cooperation between intelligence offices um, in Ukraine and in other countries. That I, you know, I, my guess is uh, that there's probably also people based, for instance, in say Poland or or elsewhere, um, that are also assisting with building these communications. Because you know, we've also seen that he mostly records his videos in Ukrainian, sometimes in Russian when he addresses um, Russian audiences. But increasingly, we've also seen him start to record messages in English um, mm. and do interviews and in English. The, the language part of it is very interesting because sometimes he switches between different languages. He really mm. does understand that in order to appeal to an audience, you have to connect with them. And I suppose that's where he's unique in this, isn't he? I think so. I'm, And again, I think this is just, you know, we like communications professionals understand that this is about um targeted communications but that's exactly what they're doing and that's exactly exactly what he's doing he knows that you know when he addresses an audience in their native language it has a much greater effect than speaking through a translator mm. and you know he has spoken through a translator when he's addressing like parliaments like he, like he did with um you know when it, with the oractus in ireland but otherwise i think it's it's even if his english is imperfect Somebody helps him write the text, proofread it, and then he records it in English. And it, it just has such a powerful yeah. effect. If you're just tuning in, this is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. I'm talking to Dr. Tanya Locott, who's DCU Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications. Tanya, can we turn now briefly to um, the issue of uh, Russia and what they're doing in the social media space? I get the sense that their outreach is far more directed towards their own internal domestic audience. What's your view? I think largely so, um, because what we've seen Russia do in, in the past six weeks since, you know, the kind of full-scale invasion started is they've um, they've introduced even more censorship inside the country. They've banned some 
key social media platforms. So they've, they've blocked Facebook, they've blocked Twitter, they've blocked Instagram. Um, they've also um, completely eradicated any remaining independent media outlets operating online or print or, or elsewhere. And so they've created this bubble inside inside the country where Russian citizens, unless they know how to use circumvention tools mm. that allow them to, to keep using these social media platforms and these websites, all they have basically is Russian state media, which are full of, you know, warmongering, disinformation, presenting um, what Russia is doing in Ukraine as some kind of higher mission, special operation to protect the Russian speaking population in Ukraine. So it, it is kind of an unreality uh, where, you know, the, the, it has nothing to do with what is actually happening and with the news that the rest of the world is seeing. And so one of the big tech companies um the likes of Facebook, YouTube, what are they doing? How how have they reacted to this misinformation and, and Russia's role in that? Um, one of the things they did was they, they started even more proactively labeling um, official government accounts from Russia. So not only Russian state media outlets, which have not only been marked as such, but have actually been banned across Europe and across most of the rest of the world by, by social media platforms. They've also started marking accounts of Russian government officials and embassies and also kind of introducing these little labels whenever somebody links to a Russian state media website saying, caution, this information comes from the Russian state. So, you know be careful um, with, with how you how you read it and how you consume it. Um, the other thing they've done is they've, um, all of them, I think, at least Facebook and Twitter, have tried to create mirror versions of their websites mm-hmm. that are available on kind of the dark web, um, just, so, just so some people, at least some people can still keep using them. Um, and, and so because they realize that, you know, the, the, they remain important sources of information uh, to those Russians who are seeking um, independent um, actual factual information about the war. Um, and the final thing they did is they, they really, I think, have uh, started to try and adapt their content moderation policies. Because despite the fact that these platforms are blocked, um, Russian um, state-assisted actors are still using them to spread disinformation. Um, so some people still have access to those platforms inside Russia. And and so these platforms have really made an effort to police um, fake news, to police disinformation. It is, of course, difficult and, you know, you, they can't capture everything. Mm. Uh, but I think they've made an effort. Um, and they've also changed um, their policies around hate speech and sort of violent content. Because, of course, you know, in the context of a war, not all co- content that is deemed violent or containing violent imagery should be blocked because sometimes it's used to inform people. Yeah. And what about the opposition we saw to the war inside Russia in the early days of uh, the campaign? Is there is it, that seems to have dissipated in our news cycle anyway. Um, is there any evidence of it actually happening still in Russia? Um, there is. I mean, it, it was it was, I think, quite small scale to begin with. So, yes, you know, people were um, protesting in, in fairly limited numbers, but we saw some large protests in some of the big Russian cities to begin with. Um, that has sort of died down. I think now people have switched to um, much smaller scale protesting and they've become more clever. So I can give you one example. So some um some of the Russian feminist activists have, have been that have been part of these kind of protesting groups. Um, uh, one of them actually recently, what she did was she created these labels 
um, that she went she went into a, a supermarket and switched the labels, you know, with prices on them um, with her own labels, which had the had certain prices, and then they also contained information about what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And then, you know, those photos were take, they took some photos of them and shared them on social media. So it's a very clever kind of mm. um, kind of under the radar way of trying to share information about the protest. But unfortunately, she was detained. And I think she's now facing a prison sentence just for doing that. So, you know, it, it's very difficult um, in Russia currently to, to protest publicly against the war. So we've seen social media being used for everything for, you know, creating armies internally in the Ukraine to plea for financial support for the country, even setting up a cryptocurrency account uh, for donations. Do you think the strategy of the Ukraine in particular might be something that military strategists look at in the future in terms of war propaganda? Um, I think there's certainly, you know, it will be one of the cases that other countries will learn from. Um, I don't think necessarily all of the strategies used by Ukraine on social media will work or will apply in other contexts because of course you know this is a very unique context in terms of you know ukraine and its place in europe and the kinds of relationship it's trying to build with um, its european allies and also you know the context of historic relationships between russia and ukraine which we can say is almost a kind of you know post-colonial relationship where russia is this big empire that seeks Mm. to um to continue to promote its influence in its um in its vicinity and ukraine you know once just wants to be an independent country and just wants to live the way that ukrainians want to live so i think there will be definitely some of the stuff will make it into into the storybooks and into the history books Um, but uh, i don't know if, if every country will be able to use all of the tools that ukrainians are using Okay, well, Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time out to share those fascinating insights with us today. We wish you and your family well in these very difficult times. That's Dr. Tanya Lokot, DCU Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications. Tanya, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, seven essential lessons for the late-blooming entrepreneur. Welcome back. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. We're joined now by John Thornhill. As the innovation editor of the Financial Times, he has written about business for three decades. But he decided to bite the bullet and create a startup himself. It's called Sifted and it's doing quite well. Thank you very much. And helpfully for us, he's written about the experience and come up with seven things that might help you if you're in the middle of a startup yourself or if you're even thinking about it. John, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. John, now I loved reading your piece last weekend in the Financial Times. It was very honest and very real. And as somebody who's had to read more than their fair share of these startup cheat sheets, uh, it was very authentic and very accessible. And we get into your uh, advice in a moment. But could you kick us off today by telling us about your idea Sifted and what made you finally do it? Sure. So in 2016, I was deputy editor at the Financial Times and I took on a new job as innovation editor and the idea I would write about technology and innovation but also try to do some of it uh, as well Um, and I think that uh, it's an incredibly exciting time to be in journalism at the moment there are lots of opportunities opening up Uh, I think technology has changed enormously Um, you can access um, uh, incredibly powerful tools cloud computing and network connections and enable uh, you to create journalism in a very different and a lot cheaper way 
And it just struck me that there was an enormous opportunity to write about this new generation of startups that were emerging around Europe that were themselves taking advantage of these technological changes. Um, and I was very excited by what I saw across um, Europe. I mean, from Ireland to Romania, there are incredibly interesting startups emerging, uh, which I thought uh, someone ought to be paying more attention to. So that was really the genesis of the idea that um, I was very inspired by a lot of the entrepreneurs that I met across Europe and wanted to create a media site to focus on them. So, John, I was thinking about the environment that you're operating in. So you're editor of Innovation at the Financial Times and surrounded by uh, people with bright, brilliant new ideas. But you're also surrounded by the news. You've got Brexit, war, um, a recession, big financial crisis. Did that impinge on your timing decision for when you actually started the, the, the Sifted project? Not really, no, because uh, the role that I took on as innovation editor was very much a kind of uh, writing a role. I wasn't um, responsible for managing a team of people in the way that I was when I was deputy editor or news editor previously. So in that sense, um, I did have more time to kind of focus on building this up as a, a separate project. Yeah, and one of the, um, the things you talk about is that managing the team of people and finding fellow travelers, people who complement your own skill set. I was looking at your team, very impressive, uh, but quite a large staff. Did you find it daunting to be responsible for the salaries, literally, for a huge team of people? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think the, the big difference of being an employee of a big and uh, a stable company like the Financial Times is that you don't have to worry in the small hours of the morning about whether you have enough money to pay your employees. Um, and that was clearly something that I did worry about at Sifted, uh, particularly in the kind of spring of 2020 when COVID uh, locked everyone down. Um, and at that time, we had actually just started our latest fundraising. Um, and so we were beginning to run on financial vapors at that point. Um, and so, yes, I very much um, was worried that uh, we might have to close and fire all the people that we had hired, which would have been an enormous heartache. And you've mentioned there that you did have a bit of security yourself in holding down a job while you uh, started on this journey. But um, what's the first piece of advice you'd give people who are starting out? What, what holds people back from making that first step? Well, I think uh, pretty much everyone uh, has a, a business idea. Um, and so, I mean, I think the first piece of advice uh, would just be to do it. Um, now, I think um, you don't uh, uh, ever create a business by thinking about an idea. You just have to act on it. Um, and I think the kind of liberating moment for me was when I was doing a, um, a kind of course on entrepreneurship and innovation at um, Stanford Graduate School of Business. And one of the academics there said, um, you don't have to have 100% of the answers. The joy of um, trying to launch a new business is that you can get away with 70% of the answers and then you figure out the rest as you go along. And that's actually a very healthy way of building a business because it means that you're re more responsive. If you think you've got all the answers when you start, then you've probably got it wrong uh, because um, you cannot possibly guess what the real market demand for a product is. And by being flexible and adaptive to the market and iterating fast and then adjusting to what the market tells you, I think you have a far greater chance of building something that's durable. And that notion of learning from your mistakes quickly is quite important, isn't it, John? For sure, yes. I, I mean, I think um, uh, the kind of Facebook mantra of move fast and break things, um, uh, that really kind of speaks to that. I'm not 
so uh, in, much in favor of breaking things uh, myself, but um, I think that uh, you do have to move incredibly quickly um, and th therefore that inevitably means you're going to fail, um, but you've got to try to learn from the failings that you have. And that can be a problem if you've come from a big organization where you have a bit of comfort and security that you don't make those changes really swiftly and learn early on the things not to do, which speaks to your point about the 30% you don't know starting off. Um, and, and that's another interesting angle, I think, on your piece from last week, which is in a startup, it's, it's hard to kind of figure out who's the boss, who's driving the ambition. What, what's your advice on that? Yes, I mean, I think in a way that um, uh, in a startup, um, you have the kind of founders of the business who have an, a vision of what they want to achieve um, and an idea, they have 70% of the answers, you hope, uh, of where they want to take it. But then they do have to be adaptive. Uh, and I think the difference I found anyway between the kind of corporate world and the startup world is in the corporate world, the kind of strategic um, vision is, is very clear. You know what the plan is um, and everyone is implementing that plan. In a startup, it's clearly far more fluid um, and you've got to adapt, you've got to change, you've got to hire different skills uh, in your team, uh, you've got to build up one side of the business, uh, in our case on the editorial side very quickly, but then after that you've got to build up the commercial side, the marketing side, the tech side, and so on. So it is necessarily a lot more fluid um, and flexible, um, and I think that makes it um, more exhilarating, but also more unnerving. If you're someone who likes the quiet life of the corporate world, um, then this really isn't for you. No, it's certainly not. Um, one of the other things you mentioned is to treasure the champions that you have. And I started to think about this. Um, you could view champions as people who are just investors or part of the founding um, team, but also there's a lot of people who are champions of a company for just advice or listening. Um, Really mapping out those champions is important, isn't it, John, to, to, to make sure you're not carrying all of the burden yourself? That's absolutely right. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, the investors in particular, um, uh, I mean, the ideal is to find really patient backers who are prepared to accept that this is a risky proposition. They might lose their money, uh, but um, are excited by the idea that you have and are prepared to back it. Um, and so we've benefited enormously from a, a kind of small network of uh, very engage, engaged, interested uh, investors who have been uh, free to offer their advice, but have also been incredibly respectful of the fact that um, they cannot interfere with the editorial independence of the product or ultimately what the managers decide to do. Um, so it's a kind of happy marriage in that sense of a lot of operational autonomy uh, but a lot of people are supporting you who are offering you quite frank um, and very informed advice. Yeah, and frank advice can be something that is uh, sadly lacking in the corporate world sometimes. Um, other lessons you've learned um, about the business startup scene. Um, can you talk to me about the financial side of it and how important that balance sheet is? Yeah, so the... Um, uh, I mean, any uh, new business clearly is not going to be profitable from day one. Uh, so you do have to uh, figure out um, how you build the business, how you spend the money uh, before you generate the revenues to cover the costs of the business most often. Um, and that's quite an unnerving process. Um, do you really hit the accelerator very hard early on and try to get to scale as fast as you can? That's absolutely fine if you're well-funded. Uh, it's more problematic if you have relatively thin funding, clearly. 
Um, so that, that's a real uh, difficult kind of balancing act uh, to get right, I think. Um, I mean, I think we have um, uh, been quite aggressive in the way that we have expanded. Um, we wanted to build a, a brand reputation and a team of people quickly to establish ourselves in the market. And I think we've done that uh, pretty successfully. Uh, but it's now a question of how aggressive we want to be, how fast we want to expand that business and how much cash we want to burn uh, to get to where we want to go. And you may draw on the advice of uh, the gentleman you referenced, Bill Strickland. Can you tell us who he is and the advice that he gave you? Sure. Um, so I went to Pittsburgh a few years ago um, and Bill Strickland is a quite remarkable social entrepreneur who started off really with nothing uh, in life. Uh, and he became um, completely obsessed with pottery, of all things. Uh, he started throwing pots at school and was inspired by an art teacher. Um, and he thought that this art teacher had helped save his life, and he wanted to uh, create a business um, off the back of that. So he went around Pittsburgh, uh, managed to persuade a lot of rich donors to invest in a uh, school, an art school, uh, which has educated um, hundreds, thousands of uh, people in Pittsburgh who don't necessarily have great advantages in life. Mm. And his argument is that if you give people self-discipline, give them a sense of self-worth, uh, then uh, they will succeed in life um, and, or at least have a far greater chance of succeeding in life. And so I was really inspired by his example and uh, the fact that he had started from a far worse position than I had far fewer advantages um, uh, than I had started from. But um, when I asked him what his advice was, um, he told me that you should stay humble, except uh, that you're gonna make a lot of mistakes, um, keep your eyes on the prize um, and just keep persisting at what you wanted to do. And he had this phrase, it's like water on granite, water on granite. Um, you just have to keep every day uh, trying to push uh, to achieve what you want to achieve. And um, I was very inspired what Bill had managed to achieve in Pittsburgh and elsewhere around America and the rest of the world in building up this network of quite extraordinary schools. Well, it's sound advice. And I think that phrase water on granite will stay with me for some time to come. Um, John, just finally to, to draw your attention to the other types of support that people need, the type of support that you, you you try and draw from your family and your friends. Could you just talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think the the greatest help that I've had uh, is my uh, co-founder, who's a guy called Casper Woolley, who had been involved in several startups before. Uh, so he's the chief executive of the company and builds um, up the business side and kind of runs all of those operations. Uh, so it's enormously helpful to have um, someone who you can constantly bounce advice um, uh, back and forth. Um, we have kind of complementary skills. I understand the kind of editorial and the content side. He understands the business, the financing, the operational side. Uh, so that has been invaluable. But also more broadly, um, it can be quite a lonely exercise uh, building a business. Um, and uh, it's particularly when the, kind of, the chances of failure are so high. Uh, and so you really do need a very supportive family um, and friends um, behind you. My wife uh, uh, herself um, uh, founded a startup uh, back in the day, uh, well, worked for a startup with, that her brother had founded. Um, and so she was very familiar with this kind of world um, and has also been extraordinarily supportive in what we're doing. And that's been incredibly valuable um, uh, that you just remain uh, with your feet on the ground um, rather than getting completely swept away by all the kind of drama and uh, the um, demands of running a business like this. 
And where is your business at now? Can you just give us a little update on, on, on where Sifted is at now? Sure. Well, since we launched, we've attracted about 15 million uh, unique visitors to the site. Uh, we're generating very healthy revenue from sponsorship and advertising and events and reports. Uh, we launched a subscription service last year, so people are paying to access uh, part of the site as well. Uh, so we feel as though we're making, um, we've got great editorial traction. Uh, we're steadily building a, a strong kind of commercial franchise as well. Um, and we want to go kind of deeper and uh, broader across Europe. Uh, we are still um, heavily uh, focused on the UK, um, but we have a readership right across Europe and actually beyond. We were quite surprised by the readership that we've built up in the US and Asia as well. Um, so we are building our network of reporters across Europe, um, and uh, we really want to become the kind of voice of this European community of entrepreneurs and the kind of platform for the industry as well, helping people with really bright ideas, able to understand more about this world and helping investors who are interested in this world find great startups to invest in. So we're very excited by what we see happening across Europe. And we wanna be part of that community of people who are trying to uh, come up and uh, create new businesses that can answer some of um, society's greatest needs at the moment. Okay, John, well, thank you for uh, sharing those insights with us today. Congratulations on your success to date and on taking the plunge. Uh, that's John Thornhill, the Innovation Editor for the Financial Times and founder of Sifted. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And now while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Please get in contact if you have topics that you'd like to hear us cover or discuss on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to today's guests and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day and have a happy Easter.